Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 31st edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, supported this month by the Forum at Imperial College London. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you in the building and online this evening. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. Those of you who are joining us tonight are in for a treat. Four fantastic presentations on four different data projects, this month connected by the theme of climate. Imagine how upset you'd be if you couldn't make it tonight. You'd be disappointed. So very disappointed. Angry, even. Or just sad. They shouldn't worry, of course. You can catch up on the video after the event. Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. For those of you on social media, it's hashtag IFG Data Bytes and we are live tweeting from at IFG events. If you're here in the building, the Wi-Fi is IFG Internet Hotspot, password institute123, all lowercase. As ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb31. And if you're here at the IFG, you can, of course, raise your hand. Why does the IFG organise data bytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government to show everyone, including those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data can achieve in practice, and to put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does data bytes work? Well, you're going to see four presentations about different data projects this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 31st data byte, so you can watch the previous 30, including last month's on the IFG website. So, what's happened in British politics since we last met? Well, this chart shows how long Boris Johnson has been Prime Minister, and when he will equal the tenure of other post-war Prime Ministers. He needs just 28 days to equal Theresa May. We'll see. Interestingly, today Johnson ties with a pre-war Conservative, one Neville Chamberlain. I think those thoughts of a third term and matching his, his hero Churchill probably feel like a long time ago. Now, obviously, the big story of the last 24 hours has been the mass resignation of ministers from the government, the continuing mass resignation of ministers from the government. When I came on stage, we were at 35 ministerial resignations outside reshuffle since Johnson became Prime Minister, and 17 in the last 24 hours, smashing the record of 11 in one day from a free trade dispute in 1932. Have we had any more? Can somebody check? 38, are we up to 38? Well, luckily I came prepared to be able to edit the chart in real time. <laughs> I did think about having a whiteboard so I could scribble in real time as well. And I did have a slide ready, which shows the line going up through the title, which at the time I thought was funny, but may now actually be the most accurate version. So how did we get to all of that? Well, just a couple of weeks ago, Tory party chair Oliver Dowden resigned due to the Tory performance in two by-elections. 
One of those was in Wakefield, a red wall seat long held by Labour that the Tories won in 2019, which Labour regained. If we go back to 1918, you can see Labour has held the seat for most of the time since then, which is why it was such a totemic victory for the Tories last time, and why Labour's win is a worrying sign that the Tories' red wall gains might crumble at the next general election. Then, of course, we have Tiverton and Honiton, where the Lib Dems went from a third to a historic win, their third gain from the government this parliament. This was significant because it was a true blue West Country seat. The Tories have held it since it was created in 1997. But they also held the predecessor seats. The Tories had held Honiton ever since it became a one-member constituency, way back in 1885. And they'd held at least one of the seats when it was a two-member constituency back to 1832. Now, Tiverton has historically been a bit better for, for the Liberals. They won back a seat they'd previously held in the 1920s and dominated in the mid-19th century. So after Dowden's resignation, we had Nicola Sturgeon announcing her intention to hold a Scottish independence referendum, which could imperil the future of the Union. Or is it League? I forget. And then we had Dominic Raab criticising Angela Rayner for enjoying Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, an opera all about the out-of-touch ruling classes. In a variation on the operatic theme, according to Politico's London Playbook, Michael Gove and Theresa May were last night at a different opera, Pagliacci, which finishes with the line, the comedy has ended. For this presentation, it never really began. But given this is Boris Johnson's Goethe Dammerung, perhaps we should look instead to Wagner's Ring Cycle, an epic tale of the thirst for power and domination that features some very strange creatures. The Ring Cycle lasts for 15 hours, 15 times as long as the average Downing Street media line, or at this point, maybe longer than the government has left. At the end of last week, Christopher Pincher resigned as Deputy Chief Whip after allegations of inappropriate behaviour. That set off what we've seen over the last 24 hours as further details and denials emerged about what the Prime Minister knew about previous allegations and when. At about 6pm yesterday, two Cabinet Ministers resigned. It's never a good sign when an IFG chart has a timestamp. Then the Junior Ministers started following in a trickle. We were approaching that record of 11 ministerial resignations in a single day, when all of a sudden five resigned in a single letter, there's government efficiency for you, to take it to 14, and we've had some more since. A new Chancellor, Health Secretary and Education Secretary have been appointed, but Oliver Dowden's role, Chris Pincher's role, and many other junior ministerial roles, including Housing Minister, uh, the next one will be our 12th since May 2010, remain unfilled. My IFG colleagues tell me that more than 13% of government ministers have resigned in the last 24 hours, lucky for some, to say nothing of other non-ministerial roles like parliamentary private secretaries. Now, that churn means we're on our third health secretary since Boris Johnson became PM in July 2019, our third education secretary since July 2019, and our third chancellor since July 2019. We were already on our third culture secretary and fourth minister for the cabinet office in the same time period. As the IFG has often argued, excessive turnover can be damaging to the effectiveness of government. But as the past 24 hours have suggested, maybe sometimes change is necessary. Turning to tonight, we have four excellent speakers who thankfully have not resigned. All of them will be talking about data to do with climate and the environment. We'll kick off shortly with Simon McClellan, head of data at the Met Office, on the big data challenges of weather and climate data. Then we'll hear from Dr Ali Mashayek, lecturer at the Faculty of Engineering at Imperial College London on climate dynamics and the effect on the warming of the oceans. 
After that, we'll have Jolene Tan, Trade's Communications Lead at Global Canopy, on mapping the deforestation impact of commodity supply chains. And finally, we'll hear from Dr. Thomas Sadler, Head of Environmental Statistics Development at the Office for National Statistics, on developing the UK's Climate Change Statistics Portal. We are squeezing in a special extra bonus data bytes before we break for the summer. Join us on the 20th of July for a justice data special. And these are the dates for your diaries for the autumn. Note that we'll be on a Tuesday rather than the usual Wednesday in November. A big thank you to the forum at Imperial College for supporting tonight's event. We are only able to keep Databytes running thanks to the support of our sponsors. So if you'd like to follow in Imperial's virtuous footsteps, then please contact my colleague Pratesh. And if you'd like to speak or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. That's enough for my introduction. So we will now hand over to Simon. Thanks, Gavin, and hello to everybody in the room and online. Of course, always when you finish the news, you hand over to the weatherman. So um, my name is Simon McClellan, and I'm head of data at the Met Office. And uh, I'm responsible for managing the vast volumes of weather and climate data that we hold. I'm working to maximise the use and impact and ultimately the value of those data to our users and collaborators. So across the world, around the clock, every single day, People are making decisions based on the weather and climate. Personal decisions, business decisions, policy decisions, local, regional decisions, and even um, time-bound decisions. Um, we provide weather and climate forecasts to a variety of customers, uh, from transport, emergency response, defence, industry, governments, and of course, the general public. Our stated purpose at the Met Office is to help you make better decisions to stay safe and thrive. And our data is at the heart of that. Nope, wrong way. Other way. <laughs> we predict the weather for today, tomorrow, next week, next season, whilst looking further ahead at how the climate may change over the coming decades. Here are just some of the use cases and benefits derived from our data over those lead times, and importantly, the inherent uncertainty associated with them. So in our case, data isn't just about describing um, the facts, the truth. Often, we're, a lot of our data is a prediction into the future, and we can't describe that as truth or fact. Those, those scenarios haven't happened yet. And we keep, we keep changing those uh, forecasts the closer to the event we get. So users of our data need to be aware of the uncertainty and perhaps even the shelf life of the data that they're using. I should hold it in my hand, shouldn't I? That would make more sense. The weather and climate isn't constrained by borders and boundaries. It really does have freedom of movement. To predict the weather here in the UK, it's essential to understand the current state of the weather further afield, what's coming our way. And often, that's beyond our borders. This global weather and climate domain drives the need for global weather and climate data. And this 24-7 international exchange of data is something that the global meteorological community has been incredibly successful at for many decades. As such, it was great to see that the fifth mission of the UK's national data strategy is all about championing the international flow of data, because that's what we do. This global community is working hard to make accurate weather and climate advice available to all through a body called the World Meteorological Organization. This is a specialised agency of the United Nations dedicated to the international cooperation and coordination of the state and behaviour of the Earth's atmosphere and the weather and climate it produces. 
at the Met Office, where the, we lead the UK's engagement with WMO, providing global leadership in key areas. This WMO has championed data sharing across borders on a free and unrestricted basis since its beginnings over 70 years ago. Data policies define the data to be shared, whilst technical standards govern how we encode and transmit data between systems. Day in, day out, this heritage of international cooperation is the foundation that allows us to provide trusted weather services based on the best information available and share safety critical data and products to support informed and timely decision making. But things are changing. You might not be surprised to hear that our data is huge. The global observations, the computer generated weather and climate projections and the analyses all covering various geographic areas at different resolutions and at many layers through the atmosphere. And of course, weather doesn't stand still. It changes all the time. Our weather is dynamic. We're therefore both a consumer and a producer of data, and we estimate that our systems process something close to a petabyte of data every day. Improved weather forecasts and, and um, new sensor platforms have generated an explosive growth in data volumes. It's becoming unrealistic, unaffordable, and soon impossible to transmit the vast volumes of data that we have in a timely basis in the ways that we've done so so far. At the same time, we've seen an explosive growth in demand for weather and climate data to support essential services across all sectors of society facing challenges such as climate change and the increased frequency and impact of extreme weather. This raises huge opportunities, but it also makes us consider how we work with data, how we provide our data. Using the cloud, anyone, whether it's government, businesses, academia, even talented individuals, can access, process, combine, analyse and use vast quantities of data. Expectations regarding data use are changing too. Convenience and ease of access to data by and for everyone are becoming the norm. Developers want to pull environmental data into their web applications. Data scientists want to combine environmental data with social and economic data to, to determine impact. Our data is consumed by algorithms and developers from a multitude of sectors, not just meteorological experts. Our specialised data formats can provide a bit of a barrier to entry for some of those data sets. So we're working to, to present our data in new ways, using simple to understand and, and easy to digest APIs, while still preserving the rich metadata that allows us to provide quality assurance and aid interpretation. As a government investing in our next generation of supercomputing capability, we're also investing in the infrastructure needed to effectively use those enormous volumes of data. To address this challenge, we're turning towards the cloud-based big data platforms to make our data accessible and usable, providing massive data storage and co-located compute resource for working with the data in situ. Data-proximate data compute or taking the question to the data. We're also working with the global community to develop API standards that allow users to access the subsections of that data most relevant to their needs. This data infrastructure is critical to the Met Office's mission to help you make better decisions to stay safe and thrive, helping us convert science into socioeconomic benefit. But our data is both big and complex. Yes, we're using technology to make our data accessible and usable, but it's just as important that we work on making it more understandable and useful, using our domain knowledge to help users find the right data and explore how best to use it. There we go.
Making data accessible isn't just about better data sharing, it's about better data communication too, to allow broader audiences beyond those experts in meteorology and climatology to take advantage of and benefit from our data. We don't want users to misinterpret our data, inadvertently making unrealistic analyses of accuracy or extremes. That would lead to bad decisions. So I'll finish with some examples of how we're changing the way we talk about data. A bit like Gavin's presentation that he just showed, this, this, this climate stripe across the top there shows changes in the annual global temperature since 1850, almost as long back as how long Conservatives have held Tiverton. Um, in 1990, the Met Office opened its Hadley Centre for Climate Predictions and Research. It's now called the Hadley Centre for Climate Science and Services, expanding its focus from research into services and communicating in wider, a wider range of accessible, accessible ways, not dumbing down, reaching out. Finally, some links to our climate comms initiatives, including storytelling through data, embracing poetry, art, and music. And of course, working with ONS, on the climate change portal that we'll hear more about later. So in summary, I've got 40 seconds. So in summary, we're a data-centric organization and we've been great at sharing with like-minded organizations around the world. Our new challenge is to make our data accessible to other users too. It's pointless having some of the best forecasts in the world if no one can find them, understand them, use them and apply them. There's much more to do, but to a weather nerd and a data geek like me, these are exciting times. Now, who's got the sports news? Thank you very much indeed, Simon. Um, I'll come to the audience in the building for the first set of questions. When we do so, wait, for, well, I'll come to you first. Uh, wait for the microphone and um, tell us who you are if you can, but remember we are on the record. Um, for those of you watching us online, remember you can submit your questions using the Slido page. You're almost certainly already on. If not, it's bit.ly slash slidodb31. So let's kick off with the first question in the room. Uh, I'm Chris Nesbitt-Smith, uh, consultant at CPS, um, though not in a professional capacity, I guess. Um, curious, I guess, in, in a world where like, we deal with like, state-funded kind of misinformation campaigns and you're, with all your international producers of data contributing in, how, how the Met challenges, uh, deals with the challenge of like, data quality and actually all being kind of scientists and all being true, but obviously politically-led motivations potentially from your sources? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think, I think one of the things that we are starting to look at now, traditionally, we just use weather information from those trusted weather experts. And these days, with the Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, there's data coming from many various multiple sources, and we're, we're, we're really challenged to look at how we can use that data. There's some fantastic emerging sources of data, but it's balancing that, how useful is it as an immediate situational awareness. If we're predicting some severe weather on, on, the, uh, on, on the M1 or something, and we can see from, this, from cameras that it's snowing, but we've not got any sensors in that space, can we use that? We couldn't necessarily use it and keep it in our archives for climate records, but for the immediate situational uh, awareness to help with those warnings. That's where we're moving towards. What, how, how can it help us improve the impact of our weather on, on users uh, and, the, and the general public? The, the sort of the trust of the, of the data, I think there is, there potentially are some issues there, but I think by crowdsourcing, often the, the, the sort of the spurious ones can be um, overcome by taking that broader range of data across different sources. 
Brilliant, thank you. Um, we'll go to an online question next, which also reminds me of one of my favourite nerdy Met Office facts, which is until fairly recently, the Met Office uh, was the responsibility of the Ministry of Defence. Yes, it was. Um, and Jeremy asks, I think that there was a time during the Second World War when weather forecasts were classified. Is this happening again for weather data around Ukraine? Oh, wow, excellent question. Um, yeah, before the Ministry of Defence, I think we were founded um, as part of the Board of Trade. I think it was it originally started there, but yes, we have been with the Ministry of Defence, and yes, one of our, one of our big customers is um, the defence uh, industry, and, the, and particularly the Ministry of Defence. We have um, I got colleagues who are in theatre in different parts around the world, supporting troops in different parts of the world, giving that situational uh, context and briefing to, to, to uh, planners and, and, and pilots and the tactical decisions on the ground. Yes, uh, I th as part of that, no matter where we are in theatre, there will be um, data and information that we use that we can then provide tactical advantage, perhaps, in some organisations. So not all of the data that the Met Office has is available um, for, for people to consume. We try and make it as open as we possibly can, but there are good reasons sometimes why we can't do that. Thanks. Uh, let's come back in the room for the next question. Put your hand up if you'd like the mic to come in your direction. Uh, we've got one at the front. Uh, thanks for the talk. You mentioned that, that you're also concerned with how the data is, is interpreted after it's shared. Now, I, mean, I can obviously understand why you would want that, but that, that, that has resource implications. And so once you are happy with the quality of the data and you share it, why would you want to? Why, why would you worry about how it's interpreted? Oh, that's, yeah, again, a, a, really, a really good question. And often that, the concern there will be if we have made a, uh, an estimate of a future scenario in terms of a weather forecast or a climate projection, often perhaps algorithms don't understand the, sort of the limitations of that data and perhaps could infer some sort of false truths from that data. So um, it could be that we're showing that there is a, um, a, good, a good chance of rain in a certain part of the country. And there will be a dividing line between where we think it's raining, where it isn't. People, the, the concern is that actually it's not raining, in, it, it's not forecast to rain for my barbecue, everything will be fine. But actually, because of that uncertainty, it may be that it moves a couple of, actually, event, the event happens a couple of miles west of that, perhaps, and it does rain at your event. So there's that uncertainty in terms of our forecast, the error bars that I showed on that graph. How accurate are we and how accurate do people take that to be? People want a deterministic, yes it will, no it won't, but often our, our predictions can't be that black and white, can't be that deterministic. There's a broad range of possibilities. The closer to the event we come, the tighter that can be. So you'll see with the weather, when we put weather warnings out, sometimes very early on, three or four days ahead, the weather warning might cover quite a broad area. The closer to the event we get, perhaps we can put like a red warning over a certain part of the country in, in very rare examples. But yeah, we, the closer to the event we come, the more confidence we have. But again, it's worrying about that interpretation without um, an understanding of that, of, of that um, uncertainty, I guess. Thanks. Uh, we've got another on, uh, we'll come into the room next, actually. Um, yes. Thank you. I have a question, which is maybe the obverse of that question, which is, um, if you, know, you make your data available, I'm just wondering if there are any particularly interesting or exciting initiatives that you've seen from other people who build on your data and, and do something beyond what you've been doing with it. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, I've worked for the Met Office for far too long. Um, 
I shouldn't say that with cameras, should I? <laughs> I worked for the Met Office for a long time, and there will be so many innovative uses of our data that I would never even think of. I mean, one of the examples at the moment we're starting to look at is um, very much around autonomous vehicles. And not only is for us, potentially, is that providing information back to us, but also we're working with regulators to say, under what conditions will these sensors not work? Is it going to be, the rain going to be so intense that the, that the instrumentation that helps drive the car will not be able to function? And so we're working on trying to, working with the regulators and the manufacturers to actually come up with some sort of um, safe operating environment for those sorts of sensors. So that's a really different approach to us just gathering data, producing a weather forecast, and then waving in front of a map on the TV. It's actually engaging with users and looking at how we can advance our understanding alongside the understanding of, of, of these particular use cases. Thanks. Um, we've got another online question from Mary Susan Barry. Good evening to you, Mary Susan. It follows on very nicely from that, actually. Is there a place and space for citizen science reporting? Oh, definitely. And hello, Mary Susan. I know Mary Susan well. <laughs> um, yes, there is. Um, the Met Office has um, always had um, citizens reporting. We called them the climate observers. We had a climate observers network. And they would fill in a postcard once a month with all of their recordings for the, for the month and send it to us, and we would put it into our records. We now have the Weather Observers website. So if, if, if people have um, a, weather, a, a weather station in, in their garden or wherever they choose to have it on their balcony, they can connect it in and send that data into the Met Office and they can self-assess how, how, how um, representative it is. If their air conditioning, uh, if, the, if their sort of boiler outlet is blowing warm air at this thing, then there's perhaps not great quality to the temperature data that they're sending into us. But definitely, as I said, the situational awareness of our forecasters, actually our meteorologists looking at the, the state on the, on the live state of the rain or the wind or whatever it is, and they can gather as much information as possible, definitely. We've, we also, the hashtag UK snow is something that we look at as well. So when people are, when people are um, doing that, we can look at that and get an assessment of perhaps where it's snowing in the country as well. It's not something that we very easily monitor through, through um, traditional sensors. So yeah, definitely looking at how citizen science can help us and citizen observations can help us. Excellent. Well, that's brought us almost perfectly to time. Uh, Simon, thanks for getting us off to a great start this evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. And our second speaker this evening is Ali. Uh, okay. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, and thanks, Gavin and, and, and the organizers. So I'll, I, I, I thought I'll just uh, give an example of how we tackle uh, a problem from a climate modeling perspective. And through that example, give an overview on the, the range of data that are needed and how we bring it together, how we can use artificial intelligence to actually expedite the process. And uh, hopefully with that, uh, help you uh, develop an appreciation for the international efforts that go together to actually being able to make predictions like the one that I'm showing, showing here on the slide. So this is showing, this is from the latest IPCC assessment report, and this is showing the trends, uh, temperature trends, so basically this is uh, heating, warming. And the point is that between the 1900 to 1980, and that's the year that I was born, everything was going more moderately, and then we started heating up really, really quickly. And so this is the surface temperature, and 
what I'll talk about is how much of this can actually find its way into the deep ocean, where it can get stored. And to, to get to that, to, probably, to properly motivate the problem, just going to show you this picture, which is uh, a schematic of the ocean circulation. So you can think of the arrows as water moving around at, uh, between different basins and also between the upper ocean and the deep ocean. So whenever you see red, it means that, that the waters are shallow near the surface. And when you see dark blue, it means that they're very deep. And any color, other color is, is in, in, in between. The point of showing this is that you have regions like polar oceans where we form very dense waters because it's cold and salty. The water sinks to the deep ocean. And with it, it can take heat and carbon and other tracers into the deep ocean. So a key question is how much of that finds its way back to the surface? And what are the processes that make that happen? And how can we actually accurately quantify that within the context of climate modeling? To, and to give you an, uh, an idea of the time scales of this, water, some waters that sink here, they, go, they, you know, they find their way to the deep ocean, to the southern ocean, into other basins, through turbulent mixing that I'll talk about. They find their way to the upper ocean, back to the Atlantic, and go back there. And that cycle is something of the order of 10,000 years. So we're talking about a very long-term history of the system. There are waters that come to the surface that sunk 10,000 years ago. So they don't know anything about global, global warming. So they're in for a surprise. And that, that picture, as complex as it looks, uh, it, it is a gross sort of simplification of the actual system. This is from an ocean state estimate made by NASA. I'll talk about this later. And it just shows you all sorts of eddies and scales. And this is the surface temperature. So we know the equator is warmer. And as you go towards the polar regions, it gets colder. Point being is that the system is very rich dynamically. Now, uh, two quick points. One is that if we look at how much the, the, the heat content of the climate system, and if we just focus on the ocean, this is how much has, has gone into the upper ocean between you know, the upper nearly kilometer of the ocean, and this is deeper in the ocean, and that's really, really deep in the ocean. Now, the depth of the ocean is where we can store a lot of heat. And this is what has already gone in. So the question is, how much of this is going to the deep ocean, and at what rate? That is really important to answer to, to, to be able to know how much the Earth is going to, to warm as we add fossil fuels. And this is. Um, an inventory of carbon uh, in the system. And only the three blocks that I want us to focus on are these three. This is about 900 gigatons in the atmosphere, about the same in the surface ocean. And in the deep ocean, there's two orders of magnitude more. So point being that the deep ocean is a huge reservoir. And it's two order of magnitude more carbon than it is in the atmosphere. So the question of how you can actually get this to go deep, which happens through ocean turbulence, is, is really a fundamental question. Now, in terms of processes, how that happens, it happens because of a range of processes. The system is very rich. But schematically, you can think of the inside interior of the ocean as uh, sort of like your beach, where you have waves traveling and breaking. But such waves exist all the way to the bottom of the ocean. And actually, the deeper that you go, the larger they can get. And I'll show you an example of that. They can, generate, they can get generated at the surface by wind blowing through the ocean, and at the deep ocean by tides moving back and forth over deep sea mountains. And they travel throughout the water column, and they break. And when they break, they mix stuff. So if you have more heat and carbon here, they're going to mix it downward. 
This is an example showing that from observations. This is the bottom temperature in the ocean. This is the Pacific Ocean. This is off the coast of Samoa, 5,000 meters. The color showed the temperature. These are waters that sank around Antarctica. They're really cold. As they crawl over the seafloor, here they get really warm. And the key question is why? So if, this is, if, if you have anthropogenic signal of carbon and heat going in, the question is how much of that can go through this passage and actually end up here. And if you look at a cross section through this square here and look at temperature, you see that as the flow from south to north goes over rough deep sea mountains, turbulence can actually really mix it. And when you zoom in, you can see these waves. And these are breaking. And the red means that they're mixing, just similar to what you see in a beach wave. But now this one is the size of the Empire State Building. So these are really, really big waves. Now, how do we actually manage to, to do this to answer the question, uh, to, to, to be able to, to, to put these in a climate model and answer the question? There are two time scales that we have to deal with. One is we need to have an understanding of, this, of, the, of the ocean state, the, the broad uh, the dynamics in the ocean and the broad stratification. And the way that we usually deal with it is that we get a range of observations, let's say from remote sensing, many, many missions by European uh, space agency by the UK, by the US. We have many in situ observations. These are all uh, cruise tracks, ships going along these over the past decades many, many times, sampling the ocean at depths. And these are floats that float around the ocean. They go up and down when they're at the surface, that they measure stuff when they're at the surface, they transmit it back. And, and so there's, uh, there's the, the, the amount of data and the range of data in terms of time and space is really diverse. And it, it, it involves many, many international collaborations. But we basically bring them together using various data-driven methods, artificial intelligence, machine learning, into a dynamical core, which is a computational model that solves the equations that we know represent the physical system. So, Data science and artificial intelligence helps bring this diverse range of information together in a way that we couldn't do before. So this is um, uh, for later. So when, if you watch the recording, you can pause and appreciate the, the, the international efforts over the many decades that have gone into constraining such a model with, with observations. Now, in terms of turbulent mixing, it's a very te special temporally variable process. Turbulence is one of the difficult problems of physics to, to, to tackle, and we've been dealing with that. But, but we have managed recently over and over again to use machine learning to basically train algorithms to infer turbulence rate, rates of turbulence from these observational programs in a way that we couldn't do before. So we can actually infer mixing from observations using machine learning. We can put it together in the state estimates that I showed you before. And once you do that, then you can actually start developing models that can predict the rate at which the heat is going into the ocean and it's actually sinking deeper. And this is from the climate model intercomparison project. So these are basically climate models that form the base for analysis that are in IPCC assessment reports that inform government policy making. So I'm going to pause here. I'm basically going to stop here. And I'll be happy to take any questions. Thank you very much, Ali. Um, I'm going to go to the virtual audience for the first question this time. So if you're in the room, do have a think about what you'd like to ask. And again, if you are watching us online, if you're not already on the Slido, it's bit.ly slash Slido DB31. Please don't make me say that every time tonight. Um, so we've got a question already from Jeremy, another very good question from Jeremy. 
If it takes 10,000 years for water to circulate, please can you tell me how you know that the water is from so long ago? Is it because it is moving very slowly? How do you know that there hasn't been a dramatic change, say, 100 years ago? Uh, hi, Jeremy. That's a very good question. Uh, well, when I say 10,000 years, that's an estimate. So there's a large error bar on that. But there are properties of the water that, uh, that, that there are properties of the water that change on much longer timescales, and there are certain properties that change much more rapid, rapidly. And so, so we can use certain tracer information in the water that can tell us more about the age of the water. And you can have tracers that go into the ocean. Some of them are actually inert. They don't, they don't, uh, they don't interact with other tracers. And so the more they are in the system, the more dilute they become. And also, there are tracers that are active, like nutrients that actually feed into the ocean primary productivity. And again, uh, we, can we, can, we can connect the, their concentrations with biological interactions that are happening over the ocean circulation. So there are multiple ways that we can bring them together. And when all the ways that we try to answer the question that you asked agree on an answer, then we can say that, OK, it is very likely that these waters are from this source that were formed at this time in this location, and this is what has happened to them in the meantime. But it doesn't mean that we can say with, with, with certainty. There are uncertainties that, that uh, come from different bits of information that I try to, to show. Excellent, thank you. I feel like uncertainty very much a theme of our first two presentations so far this evening. Um, let's go to our studio audience, as it were, for a question. Uh, yes, just there. Tom Coates, Cabinet Office. Um, can you say a little bit more about the machine learning? Uh, if I understand correctly, you're using it to somehow sidestep the problems of kind of an a priori understanding of modeling turbulence. But what, how, how do you use machine learning? What does it let you do that you couldn't do otherwise? Am I allowed to use a backup slide? Or? Uh, I think we may have moved on to okay, the next slide. I'll, I'll give you an example of, of, from my own research. Um, so the global observation program that I showed that like, includes the like, WOS and GoShip that have all the cruise tracks or the Argo program, they usually measure temperature, salinity, and depth. They don't measure turbulence. So actually convincing governments that turbulence is a property that we need to measure is something that as a community we are really focusing on, and it takes decades to get there. So in the meantime, we don't have any explicit measurement of turbulence, but we have individual uh, experiments, you know, maybe under 20, that have measured turbulence in, in uh, different parts of the ocean for the whole water column, from the surface to, to, to the abyssal ocean. And those also measure temperature, salinity, and depth, right? So we use those to train algorithms. We've done it using regression trees and using different levels of neural networks. And so we, we teach algorithms how to predict characteristics of turbulence from basic information that the global observational program actually can measure. And, and that helps us ex extrapolate our knowledge. And, and, and just, just, just to finalize that, and a key point is that when we train these machine learning algorithms, there are questions about how you, how you choose your features. And, and so the physical understanding is a key to actually you know, informing those algorithms. Excellent, thank you. I'm gonna go virtual again for this question from Anonymous. Good evening to you, Anonymous. Have there been any struggles working with organizations around the world who may be collecting data in different ways or formats? Uh, that's, that's, that's a great question. 
yes, there are many challenges. I think the challenges are, the first challenge is, is sharing the data. Uh, the second challenge is to, to come to a common understanding of what is meant by quality control. And, and then the, the, the third challenge is to actually translate all the data into a language that is consistent. And then, then, then from there on, you can actually start using it. So uh, in terms of challenges, in terms of sharing the data, there's always, uh, it depends on who is funding the acquisition of the data. And then even if it's publicly funded, whether it's shared nationally or internationally, and even if it's broadly shared, how much of the data is actually shared. For the type of research that I've that I shown you, for example, the knowledge of high resolution bathymetry of the ocean is, is really, really key, right? But that's notoriously difficult to get our hands on. We know different militaries in different countries, uh, especially those with submarines, have a lot of high resolution information, but that's not publicly available. For example, the Arctic Ocean is a region that's rapidly changing. We really need to know the bathymetry. We know governments know it, but we can't get our, our hands on it. For, for right or wrong. So, so uh, one of the challenges that I've, uh, I've had to deal with over and over has been that. Uh, and once, but once you get the data, I think that the, the main challenge to translate it or make sure that they're compatible is that uh, the, the expertise that is needed, like we heard in the first talk, to, to, uh, to store the data, to quality control it, to make it compatible, is not necessarily what academics are trained for, and it's not necessarily what research institutions have been trained for. So, so there's a boom in data science, and there are more and more sub-disciplines of that that are graduating people, and so there's, there is a very good market for people to fill in the gap between science and engineering and research, and actually connecting it with public and policymaking. Hope that answers the question. Thank you. Uh, let's come back in the room for the next question. Uh, raise your hand if you've got something you'd like to ask. Anyone? Otherwise, I'm going to have to ask one, and nobody wants that. Uh, Simon Dem at the front. We should really talk more. Um, I think there's, there's quite a lot of parallels between um, perhaps what I was talking about more about the atmosphere and what you're talking about with the ocean and work that I've been doing with the World Meteorological Organization sharing data across borders. Perhaps there's not quite so many borders in the ocean. But are there things that you look at from the meteorological uh, side of things that you wish could be, could be possible in, in oceanography as well? And perhaps the opposite of that, what are you doing in oceanography that you could teach us, uh, us a thing or two about? Uh, great, great question. I think historically, uh, atmospheric science is more advanced. So I think uh, we are still in the process of extracting information from that and translating it in, in, into the oceanic context. Uh, but in terms of, uh, I mean, what I didn't get to, to, to talk about is that the, the state estimates that I showed are, are really constrained with information at the surface. And the ocean is you know, one of the main drivers, if not the most important one, is, is the wind. And then the second one is the exchange of uh, heat and, and, and fresh water between the atmosphere and the ocean. And so built into uh, a common, common understanding of the state of the ocean is a lot of information that we actually get from you. 
So there is already a solid connection there. The problem uh, in terms of what we can, what you do that we can do is that you can see through the sky and we can see through the ocean. So if we can solve that problem, we, we have a lot more to talk about. Fantastic. Well, again, perfectly within time as well. Ali, that was fascinating. Thank you very much. And our third speaker this evening is Jolene. Let me just make sense of which way this goes. Ah, oh, great. Okay. Um, thanks very much, Gavin. I'm really glad to be here to tell you more about the work that Trace does, mapping deforestation in supply chains. Uh, and I'm going to start by talking about why this is needed. Um, we're here today talking on the theme of the climate crisis. And essentially, there is no solution to the climate crisis that doesn't also involve a solution to the problem of deforestation. The IPCC estimates that about 11% of global emissions uh, are due to deforestation and land use change. Um, and one key driver of deforestation is agricultural conversion for key commodities. Put simply, forests are cleared so that cattle can graze in order, and they are later processed into beef or leather. Forests are cleared so that soy can be grown, palm oil, coffee, cocoa, um, various other commodities. And um, some of these commodities are consumed domestically in the countries where they are produced, but a substantial proportion is also traded internationally, and that contributes uh, to global emissions. So the context that Trace works in, um, we attempt to address the question of how to share responsibility for these impacts across supply chains that are global and complex. Uh, so this is the point where I guess I should also explain what is TRACE. TRACE is a program and a partnership. We are not a not-for-profit initiative. I work for Global Canopy, and the other main founding partner of TRACE is the Stockholm Environment Institute. And you can see that there's a kind of global network of partners that we work with um, in this endeavor. And what TRACE does is to bring transparency to supply chains, uh, agricultural supply chains that drive tropical deforestation. We map supply chains in order to connect uh, consumer markets, meaning importing markets, such as perhaps the UK might import tropical commodities, or China, or various other importing markets. We connect these markets to tropical deforestation and other impacts in producer countries. So if the UK imports Brazilian soy, for instance, what is the deforestation associated with that? To do this, we bring together disparate and publicly available data. You can find our data and analysis on our platforms, uh, Trace.Earth, Trace Finance, and Trace Insights. We have mapped, as of 2021, over 60% of the global trade in uh, forest risk commodities, um, by which we mean tropical forests, because obviously there are also other forests, but our focus is on tropical forests. Um, and you can see a selection of the particular commodities and the areas of production that we have mapped on this slide. So uh, when we say we map them, what we then do is we produce uh, various data products and visualizations that enable us to uh, represent and understand these supply chain flows. So this is a Sankey flow. It's one of our signature data visualizations. And what you can see is that if you look at, for instance, let's say the production of soy in a country like Brazil in a given year, what we can do is trace um, 
the production and the deforestation impact of that production in specific regions of production, we associate that with companies and traders who export various volumes of production, and we associate that with various countries of destination and importing markets, and that enables us to say that there are certain volumes of imports that are associated with certain uh, quantities of deforestation exposure in particular regions of production. And what this does is it enables, let's say, companies who are looking at their supply chains or financial institutions who are concerned about their portfolios or governments who want to do something about their imported deforestation to act in a more strategic and targeted way. So I'll give you an example here. Let's say you were looking at a specific commodity in a specific country and then a specific importing market, let's say China, importing soy from Brazil. You can actually identify the specific areas where sourcing is likely to be concentrated, also where deforestation is concentrated, and also you can often, in the case of very many commodities and countries, you can also identify the key companies who are associated with deforestation risks. So this is an opportunity for targeted action. It's not, you know, all soy from Brazil is, is irretrievably tainted. It's more a case of identifying exactly where those impacts are and who are the actors in that supply chain. How does Trace do this? It would take me far more than eight minutes, more like eight hours to explain, but briefly, in a nutshell, um, there's various data requirements in order to build a supply chain. For every single combination of commodity and country of production, that's going to be different because there are different kinds of production involved and there's different data sources available. But broadly speaking, the per shipment trade information is the backbone of what Trace does, being able to connect specific companies to specific exports from a port and certain volumes and then the importing markets that, that goes to. We use in-country asset information like tax information or company declarations in order to build a map of where assets are located. So where are the soy silos? Who are they owned by? Where are the slaughterhouses? Where are the oil, uh, palm oil refineries or mills? And that gives us a, uh, allows us to build a picture um, and develop a decision tree about who in the supply chain is associated with what volume of production from specific regions of production. Um, and there may be other additional information depending on the, the specific context that we use. Uh, so that allows us to then attribute um, volumes of commodity flow to specific actors from specific regions. In terms of measuring the deforestation impact, so we use here spatially explicit data, meaning satellite imagery, and we can see where an area of land that was previously forest in subsequent years becomes pasture or becomes soy production. And that enables us to say within this region of production in a given year, there is a total quantity of deforestation exposure, which is spatially explicitly identified. And then that exposure is attributed to various supply chain actors based on their volumes of sourcing as we've uh, allocated via the decision tree. Uh, so that is very briefly how it works. But if you want to know more, all of our methods and data sets are set out on our website. So you can find out more there. Trace and governments, um, what is it that we can do for governments? So um, the context of this, of course, is that a lot of importing countries are really kind of stepping up their action on addressing imported deforestation in their supply chains. 
there's been a range of high-profile national commitments, like the Glasgow Leaders' Declaration at COP26 last year. And uh, interestingly and unprecedentedly, there is a range of legislative measures that is coming into play. In the UK, the Environment Act has already been passed, but we're still awaiting secondary legislation for the details. Um, there's a European Union proposal, and there's a, also an incipient piece of legislation in the US. And what these regimes have in common is they are seeking to place obligations on importing actors in their, these respective jurisdictions to scrutinize their imports and scrutinize their commodity flows uh, in order to ascertain and demonstrate that they are either deforestation-free in some cases or illegal deforestation-free in some other cases. So the regimes are not all identical. And what's, uh, this raises a very interesting question from the point of view of governments about the data disclosure that's actually required from companies in order to meaningfully demonstrate this, what is necessary and what is reasonable to require in terms of data proposal, uh, data disclosure, and also what is going to be required in terms of authorities um, in investment in understanding and scrutinizing the disclosure that's made so that you can actually ascertain that the policy objectives are met. So this is a Massive area, um, we've been doing lots of work with governments to kind of understand ways in which they can track this. I can share more later, um, but broadly speaking, uh, that's the sort of work that Trace has been doing with governments. So, thank you. Jolene, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'll come to the, the audience in the room first for the questions this time. Just to remind you, that if you are watching us online, please use the Slido. If you're not on the Slido already, it's bit.ly slash slidodb31. Uh, who in the room would like to ask the first question? We've got one down here. Thanks, uh, Kate Ogden. Um, how far along supply chains can you track things? So Trace maps what we would describe as the middle of the supply chain. We go from regions of production, so for instance, a municipality in uh, Brazil or maybe a kabupaten in Indonesia or a certain region of production, um, through to exporting ports to importing ports. We don't, uh, the, the Trace data doesn't cover what happens after the importing port stage. So for instance, which uh, companies are using it in the European Union, let's say, or in the UK, that's not on our platform. Brilliant, thanks. Uh, any more questions in the room? I think we've got, do we have one there? Yeah, and I'll come to you next. Hi, great talk, this is really interesting. I have, I guess, a sort of tripartite question. So um, you said 60% of deforestation is mapped, but is that in terms of, or trade is mapped, but is that in terms of dollar units or actual deforestation? And then if it's in terms of deforestation, I guess I was wondering what the challenges are of like the dark matter remaining part of mapping all of it, and then what the kind of uncertainties are associated with, um, with the, the, the mapping itself. Um, okay, so that 60% figure is about the volumes of commodities associated with tropical deforestation. So it's not um, the amount of deforestation, but the commodities, yeah. Um, as for what's left, I mean, there is a huge amount of work that goes into mapping each, we call them contexts, it's a bit of jargon, that's a marriage of a commodity and a country of production. And so we have concentrated our efforts on those uh, commodity country combinations that are most 
associated with a, a total volume of tropical deforestation globally, uh, there are a huge range of possible countries and commodities, but that's, that's where we are at the moment. Yeah. And we had a question down the front row. Oh, okay. already got answered. Uh, any more in the room? We've got another one down the front. Thank you. Um, if I were an exporter and I didn't want to uh, pick up in your data, what would I do about it? I'm going to call that, a, what, what would I do to avoid being in your data? And from the government's point of view, what anti-avoidance uh, action and policies can we put into place to ensure that those data flows are mapped? Um, you can probably tell from this question, I used to be a tax man. What? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So what, what would I do if I didn't want to turn up in trace data? Uh, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a really, really good question. And the data sources that we use in different, or different countries of production will vary greatly because some have much more uh, extensive systems of recording and disclosure and transparency than others. And, uh, it's interesting, actually, because we, for instance, work a lot with uh, the Brazilian context and actually finding out how land is used in Brazil is a lot more straightforward than getting access to, let's say, land registry records in the UK for like who owns what land and how that's used. Um, so I guess uh, central to our data sources is those collections of things like um, land registries or like tax information that reveals um, ownership of assets. Actually, we are seeing in some places there's a movement more towards improving um, the disclosure rather than uh, obscuring it. So, for instance, probably as a result partly of global interest in palm oil deforestation, we're finding that a lot of companies involved in palm oil are doing more to uh, reveal the linkages, let's say, between exports and refineries and, and, and mills. Um, and as the demand for deforestation-free supply grows, we think there might actually be advantages to being more transparent because if you can demonstrate that your supply is deforestation-free, that is arguably a marketing advantage in a world that wants that. Um, so, uh, yeah, those various data sources um, are key. And I'm sorry, the second part of your question was about avoidance by... Gov yeah, what does government do to stop avoidance? I see. OK. Um, are you talking here about the producing country governments or the importing? OK. Um, so what we think there is a lot of uh, scope for in terms of improving disclosure around this uh, would basically be to have investment in monitoring systems and investment in verification systems. Um, we know that, for instance, in Brazil, uh, there has been an increase in a lot of deforestation um, in recent years, and there's question marks about the level of funding and support that might be available to things like, let's say, the satellite programs or the various forest monitoring programs. So what's really important is to see governments in producing countries and in importing countries step up in investment into those systems. Um, there's also a lot that can be done by importing countries in terms of standardizing and harmonizing how they understand their imported deforestation exposure, which is part of what we've been doing as well. Actually, we've worked with um, the JNCC 
to develop an experimental statistic which is, uh, broadly speaking, sort of tries to indicate the UK's imported impact on, uh, imported environmental impact. Um, and we've recently been working with the German development agency to also develop different standards for understanding like what deforestation is imported via direct trade or after you take into account re-exports, if you're looking at a consumption footprint as a whole. But many of these things are still in a relatively um, incipient form. I think a lot more can be done to standardise. Thanks. We've got another question online, another question from Anonymous. Uh, what's your biggest challenge in getting governments to engage beyond commitments? That's a yeah, really a good question. Um, so I think it's clear from what I've said about legislation that actually there is now much uh, more concrete action being taken in terms of implementing legislation. One of the challenges is going to be how to operationalize that in a way that has the desired impact. It is untested territory in many ways. There have in the past been other sorts of maybe analogous legislations, let's say timber regulations, uh, attempting to get timber to comply to uh, uh, certain standards with regards to deforestation. Uh, but this is a lot broader across very many more commodities and very many uh, different kind of means of production and uh, different sort of data sources will be available. So I think um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in investing, I think, in the capacity to understand these different contexts and to ensure that, let's say, you're, you know, you're an enforcing, enforcement agency, you've received, in, com in order to comply with due diligence legislation, this massive amount of disclosure of all the sourcing plots or, or other information. How do you actually make sense of that? How do you decide whether this is enough to demonstrate compliance or actually indicates a problem and requires some kind of other enforcement action? That's a really non-trivial problem and one that I think governments will really have to step up on. Great. If you can answer this final question in 10 seconds from Jeremy, your slide on deforestation looked like it showed areas of a few hectares change and soy produced of a few hundred tonnes. Is this an example or is the mapping really as accurate as that? Um, I mean, I think for these more detailed questions, it's probably best to look at the specific method methodological documents that we've got because that's also going to vary according to country and commodity, but yeah, great question. And, and it's all written up on the website, so Brilliant. please trace not uh, Great presentation and great answers as well. Thank you very much, Jolene. Thank you. And our final speaker of the evening is Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to everyone in the room, particularly thank you to Simon for giving me a fantastic shout out right at the beginning there. So I'm going to start with the Climate Change Act um, because the Climate Change Act is our mission statement on net zero. And that was amended in 2019 to give the, um, you can see the amendment here. Uh, uh, to give us the 100% target uh, for net zero. And the reason I'm bringing that up is that to be able to do this, you know, this has uh, created an enormous amount of policy action within government, an enormous amount of um, recording, and necessarily, oh, 
that is uh, across a large number of different organizations for very good reasons. We have quite a distributed uh, statistical environment within the UK. And the, the, there is a plethora of information out there uh, on the environment and on climate change. And really, I thank you. The mission of our, um, uh, that we've taken on in the ONS uh, is to create a, um, is to bring all of this data together into one place, both as a data repository and also in terms of a, putting a front end on that and creating a portal that um, people can see and uh, shows what this um, uh, data is in a more engaging way. Um, and so this is also, I'm going to bring in the integrated data service here, which I believe Alison Pritchard gave an excellent talk at, uh, at Databytes recently. Um, and this is a new development within the ONS. Um, which is uh, creating new ways to bring together data, both technologically and in terms of operations, and uh, being able to do different types of analysis and faster analysis, um, and to collaborate across government without and outside of government to do that for the public good. Um, so bringing me on to, <coughs> beg your pardon, uh, so in terms of building the portal that we've uh, done, we've basically shot a new type of arrow with a new type of bow. And we're combining new content in terms of uh, a data repository um, and uh, bringing all, a lot of data from a lot of different uh, government actors into one place and up to one consistent set of high standards. Uh, and being able to put a dashboard on that and being able to uh, also publish articles and blogs on top of that that um, uh, explain that, uh, the data's meaning in, a, in greater depth. And we've been doing this in the, um, uh, with a new kind of data environment, which we call a data-driven content management system that's been developed by the uh, integrated data service. Um, that's some, uh, we've, uh, some stuff about uh, using CF CSV web formats, which are a fantastic thing, which bring in and embed the metadata that goes alongside um, that information. Um, and we've also been doing this. Uh, this uh, cross-government cross climate change portal is not uh, a pure ONS uh, mission. It's not a pure ONS product. It's delivered with an awful lot of uh, different government partners. Thanks very much to the Met Office in particular here, who are here, but also a lot of central government departments and the devolved administrations. And um, uh, while we're providing the, like the, the editorial and the secretariat, um, as well as the IDS doing um, like the tech stuff behind it, behind the portal. We have a steering group of central government departments that helps us make key decisions, and then also a wider advisory group um, that includes people outside of central government departments that provides expertise and advice and feedback. Um, so I'm going to skip over most in terms of the uh, product. There are key, two key dates here. The first one is that we launched our prototype for this portal for the last COP in Glasgow, and we are hoping that the final version will be updated and ready to go by the time of the next COP uh, in Egypt. Um, so this is a view of our, um, just the front page 
of our current portal. It's very much based on the COVID dashboard if you haven't seen um, this particular one before. But we're updating it, um, and sorry, beg your pardon. Um, and underneath that, which is perhaps less seen by some users, uh, we've also got a, a data store where we have a, like a, a secondary version, if you like, of a lot of um, data that's published in different places. And we've uh, put all of that onto a CSVW basis. We've put all of that um, uh, into the same kind of linked uh, way. So if you're a data scientist and you're trying to get a lot of data sets from different places, we've saved you all of the munging and put it all in one place, which I hope at least one data scientist somewhere is going to be grateful for. Um, so this is the new design that we, that we have that is fully um, matches the, our new uh, gov.uk and the digital government service uh, publishing standards. The, um, and uh, the, but the really exciting thing about this, from my point of view, is that to be able to produce uh, this old one required a fair bit of HTML, required some JavaScript, and that's something our publishing team does for us. So I send them an email and say, could you do this or do that? And they say, yes, we'll put it on our, on our uh, workflow. Um, to be able to change the new version, uh, someone's built me a GUI that does it for me. And I'm really happy about that. And uh, if other people are in government, then I really hope you're going to be able to get, get excited about having a GUI built for you that allows you to directly change what you're sending to the public. Um, so that is, I said it, uh, it's not totally code-free. So in terms of building in data, but bringing in data, you can do that via straight CSVs. We're using Sparkle here to be able to point the data at our um, repository. But as an analyst who's used to using R and Python and uh, SAS and SQL and so on, being able to learn Sparkle is not such a hard, a hard challenge as it would be to go and learn JavaScript, which is a different language doing totally different things. Um, uh, and when it comes to actually putting together articles, uh, building graphs, um, and uh, displaying data and maps, um, this GUI, uh, which has been built by the IDS, gives us a whole bunch of different templates that we can shoot, that we can use. Um, so, as a as not as a non-publishing professional, I can come in and present and make a very high-quality, professional-looking product which um, through, and because of the, the way we've used menus have been presented, that all means that uh, I will be constrained to using our formal style that we uh, have in the ONS, um, which could be changed. But, um, and that gives a consistent and high quality feel to this bit of, it, to this bit of information. So um, summing up, the integrated data service is a thing. They're changing the way we produce statistics. They are changing the way that we um, uh, display them. Uh, and we've been an early adopter for some of these new tools, and they're really great. Um, we've built a uh, cross-government uh, climate change portal um, to do that as a, demonstra as a demonstrator. Um, uh, we've done that in collaboration with a lot of different stakeholders across government. Um, and as a final shout out, if you're producing data, um, please make it linkable. Please make it uh, easy for us to be able to do this kind of thing. Um, and um, that's about it, really. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening.
Thank you very much, Tom. Um, again, for those of you watching us online, a reminder that you can put your questions via Slido. And if you're not already on Slido, I'm sure the rest of the audience can say it with me at this point, bit.ly slash slidodb31. Um, let's go to our in-building audience for the first question. Who would like to ask Tom something? I can see Simon's ready to put his hand up down here. Let's... Thanks, Tom. It was a really interesting presentation. I was interested in the integrated data service being a very much a government um, data capability. Are there any um, thoughts of expanding that perhaps data that might be available from outside of government, from private sector at all? Um, I, in the short term, I, it's, uh, I think we're going to learn how to walk before we can learn how to run. And I think that means doing government first. Um, I also think that you know, there are organizations, say, like your own, that where they're independent of government for, uh, formally, but they are state-owned bodies. And I think that would be a more um, intermediate case where we might learn how to jog before we could learn how to run, as it were. So, but I think that could happen in the future. Great, thank you. Um, I'm going to go online for the next couple of questions. Um, so if you're in the room, do think what you'd like to ask Tom. Um, Eagle-Eyed Jeremy says, it's nice to see accessible data, but I think that your first graphs on the dashboard you showed have no y-axis numbers. Do you think that this is OK? Very specific data viz question there. Um, but I wanted to ask a sort of general question attached to that, which is you were talking about the, the GUI, the graphical user interface. And I wondered how much you tested some of that with users to understand what they wanted to see. Um, so there's uh, two questions there. I think uh, any uh, lack of y-axis numbers is a totally my fault for cutting the screenshot off at totally the wrong place. So hands up, um, that's my bad. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, actually, we are looking for um, uh, data um, test, well, test, it, test cases, as it were. Um, and uh, please, can you email me? Um, if you uh, would like to be a user, a test user, and we can get in contact with you. Fantastic. It's a great offer to everyone watching online and in the room. Um, we've got another question online from Anonymous, uh, which is, does this platform only contain environmental data? Is it expected that this product could replace data.gov.uk or the Find Open Data platform, or will there be a distinction between statistics and transparency? And are you able to indicate if there's long-term funding for this initiative? So that's quite a few questions in there. There's a lot there. <laughs> um, so I think I'm going to deal about the gov.uk issue first. Um, the, we're a test case for the integrated data service. Um, that, that will be the new way of doing things. Um, but were, and, and, and that will evolve by the time that it gets to other areas. Um, I think that probably sounds a bit vague and waffly, but I think it's the best, best I can do in the circumstances there. But this, this sort of way of doing things will be rolled out. In terms of our product, that's going to be restricted to climate change data. Um, there will be other products that do other things that will use some of this tooling. So um, I don't know, maybe there might be an inflation portal at some point in the future, or um, a GDP for portal, or something like that. But um, I'm speculating there. 
Great, thank you. Uh, let's go to our studio audience. We've got a question at the back. Thank you. Hi, good evening. Uh, John Spanton from Valtech. Um, was interested to um, understand your, your thoughts on sort of the variances of data quality that you see from the different sources of data and if there's a, a means of giving those consuming the data an indication of the likely quality and said variances. Um, I don't want to say that any of those sort, when, it depends exactly what you mean by data quality. Uh, and I don't necessarily mean here in terms of the assurance over how, what the number is or the error on that. Um, or a lot of these data are all official statistics or national statistics that are all, um, you know, that they are good things that have that kite mark. What I meant was by putting it on a consistent basis is essentially about data management, data presentation. Um, so a lot of our national statistics are still published in Excel sheets that are put on, up on various different places. Um, some might have different types of marker um, to give one um, uh, rather spurious sounding example. Um, we had one set of sheets from the, um, one thing that looked very similar where they've said coverage under a column average to, to, to title and then another a uh, very, very similar thing says geographical coverage. And that caused our, um, uh, some of our coders no end of worry, being able to link those two data sets up and to be able to put that on a consistent basis. Um, so that's what I mean by a consistent, I mean, it's like column he headers, that kind of thing. Date formats. I think we've, uh, anyone who's a data scientist here has struggled with date formats uh, in different uh, places. You're preaching to the converted here at the IFG when it comes to that sort of thing, especially when it comes to abbreviations for government organisations. It's a real pain. Um, have we got any more questions in the room? So I was just wondering how um, the UK government's work here compares internationally. Are there any other countries or governments who are doing similar things in terms of trying to bring all their climate data together in one place? I think it's better that uh, I'm not an international expert. Um, I don't know of any uh, per se, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. So I don't particularly want to comment there. Cool. Um, a question from me. Um, there seems to be quite an enthusiasm across government at the moment for dashboards and portals, some of which are excellent and useful and some of which the less said about probably the better. Um, but would you have any advice to people who are thinking about building something like that across government? What's worked well, what hasn't? Um, what would you tell them to do? Um, I don't know what I, how I can... I, I, building dashboards across government has been like the last three or four years of my life. Um, I don't know how to fit that into one minute, 25 seconds. Um, give me a call and we'll have a chat would be my very first thing. And that is an, that is an open offer to anyone building a dash, any dashboard in government. Um, I think thinking very carefully about your user and who your real user is rather than um, necessarily what your um, customer says that your user is. So is your user is your real user actually your, your, your user's boss? Yeah. Or is it their um, lieutenant? Um, uh, I was building um, 
the dashboards in number 10 with the number 10 data science unit um, in my previous role. And you know, we had uh, a lot of questions about what the, what the prime minister, what the, um, whoever they happen to be, uh, uh, are, what is the, who is the, uh, what, what the Prime Minister is going to get out of using this, what the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff is going to get out of using this, what the SPADs are going to get out of this, what other ministers are going to get out of this. Um, so being very clear about all of the possible users and, and what their relations are to each other and what they need from that product. And um, just being very clear and mapping that thoroughly before you start, um, well, uh, before you start coding. Brilliant. Well, that's, I think, the perfect answer to end on. Tom, thank you very much indeed. A few final bits of housekeeping before I let you get to the free food and drink. Um, Tom mentioned um, 10, the 10, number 10 data science unit and um, dashboards. We actually had them speaking back in December, I think, at Databytes. So again, do check that out. It's a brilliant talk, um, as have all four been tonight. Um, obviously, there's a lot going on politically at the moment, so do keep an eye on the Institute for Government website uh, and various Twitter accounts to see uh, what on earth is happening and whether we have a government. Um, I've no idea what's happened in the last hour and 20 minutes, so who knows? Uh, as I said, we've got a special uh, bonus Databytes on the 20th of July around justice data, so please do join us for that. There are lots of other IFG events coming up before we break for the summer. Uh, you can join some online lectures from our outgoing director, Bronwyn Maddox, and from Theresa May. Uh, that one's tomorrow, so do sign up for those on the website. Uh, and then we've got a number of events that you can be in the building for or joining us online around how the services sector can help with levelling up, on how ministers approach leadership in government, and on modelling, which might be of particular interest to uh, our Databytes audience. So all that remains for me to say is thank you to all of you uh, in the audience here in the building and online for some brilliant questions and for joining us tonight, to the forum at Imperial College uh, for sponsoring tonight's event. And uh, finally, join me in a round of applause for our brilliant speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.